welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Robert Jensen, Emeritus Professor in the School of Journalism and Media at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a prolific author and one of my favorite people to talk to. So thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Sylvia, it's always great to talk. You know, since we last spoke, the world seems to have been upside down. You know, the... um, the fear of pandemic seems to be corrosive and ubiquitous. Everywhere you look, people are terrified. And sadly, I think this cascade of catastrophes we're living with, be it pandemic fear or fires, as it is the case here in British Columbia, um, seems to be endemic everywhere. So Mm -hmm. I was very relieved when I learned about your book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability. Can we talk a little bit about how that title came about? Sure. Wes Jackson um, is well-known within the sustainable agriculture and environmental movements, but not so well-known outside of that. So listeners may not recognize his name. Uh, He was a Kansas farm boy turned professor who left academic work to found a uh, an alternative school back in the 1970s. It was called the Land Institute in Kansas in Midwest America. The alternative school also morphed eventually into a research institution. And at the Land Institute, they're still doing some pretty exciting research on perennial grains. It's a complicated and complex, often beyond my scientific ability, but the idea is that um, by growing perennials instead of annuals, we can plow less, the soil will be healthier. It's a long and important story. But but Wes founded that place back in 76 and has been going ever since. He's retired from running the place day to day. I chose the title, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, to capture, I think, a spirit that we all need. Wes is one of those guys who just doesn't know how to sit still, even at 85. You can't keep him down. And he he kind of gravitates toward questions that don't have easy answers, might not have answers at all. He gravitates toward problems that don't have easy solutions. And I think that's the kind of spirit we need to not give up in the face of real challenges. And Wes's life is sort of a an indication of that. He'll tell you that if you go back to the late 60s and early 70s when the environmental movement in the United States was just taking off, he was pretty much convinced it was all over. He didn't see a way out and he didn't expect to be around this long. Well, you know, it didn't play out exactly that way. He would say we still have really deep environmental and social challenges that aren't going to be solved easily. But he's a, a really joyful character. He faces down these tough questions but has a very loving spirit. And I think that's you know, kind of what we're after here. And so young people have great ideas, and young people are the engine of social change. But our elders are repositories of wisdom as well, and the book is really an attempt to capture the wisdom of this one particular elder. 
Mm. It's important that we recognize what an elder is. So can you explain yeah. a little what that means to you? Yeah, well, I always say elders aren't just old people. I've known a lot of old people I wouldn't, you know, follow around the corner <laughs> because uh, their lives are a testimony to bad judgment, um, you know, selfishness, greed, all sorts of things. So simply getting old doesn't make you an elder. I think, at least to me, an elder is someone who has proved uh, trustworthy, someone whose counsel we can rely on. Now, that doesn't mean elders are always right. In fact, I think the the greatest elders are the ones who point out their mistakes as much as their successes, because, you know, you know, Wes is 85 years old. Nobody lives to 85 without making a whole lot of mistakes along the way, bad judgments, getting things wrong. So to me, elders are a place to look not only for insight into how the world works, but as a reminder of humility um, that, you know, none of us has the whole answer. If we're lucky, we might get a little part of the answer somewhere. I love that. And, you know, one of the things I love about you is that you always have a way of combining real-life applicability of terms. And for me, critical theory in general, you know, I think of Paul Freire, and it's more about asking... When we're, re when we're researching something, is asking, how will this serve society, right? Mm -hmm. Will it do sure. more harm than good? You know, it's not just about finding information for information's sake, but rather trying to find solutions to ongoing problems. Mm -hmm. When we talk about yeah. creating a sustainable world, what are we sustaining? Is it business as yeah. usual? Or? Let me go back. You, you mentioned Paulo Freire, who, of course, the incredible educator, thinker, radical uh, from Brazil. And, and you were implicitly saying, well, those are the elders we need to look at, not necessarily people who come out of the universities. And I heard it, Sylvia. You were trying to criti criticize all these highfalutin university professors who use big words. And I'm not going to let you get away with it. Well, actually, I agree with, completely with that. Uh, I spent, you know, 30 years in academic life, and I really d developed an incredible distaste for people who tried to develop knowledge that didn't have a direct application to the world and who hid behind theory, you know, in the kind of negative sense of that, who hid behind jargon. And I think you're absolutely right, and I'm going to press that because I think the universities, uh, you know, not only in the United States, and North America, around the world, generate incredible knowledge, but it has to be directed toward human flourishing and ecological health. And if it isn't, then I'm not much interested in it. Uh, and, and that's another reason I, I really admire Wes. He, he had a kind of cushy academic job, and he gave it up. He gave it up to found a new institution with no guarantee it would even last a year. And I think that kind of uh, risk-taking and, and courage, I'll call it courage, is really important. So um, I'm four square behind this kind of cynicism. Yeah. Well, the status quo is over. Now, not everybody would agree with that, of course, but I'm talking as a matter of practical reality. A high-energy, high-technology, mass-consumption world. And, of course, most of that consumption goes on in the first world and the developed world, but it's an, uh, an idea that is spread everywhere. Uh, and, and in parts of the developing world, you still you, you will see this kind of obsession with energy, technology, consumption. Okay, well, that's over. Obviously, it's still going on today. Obviously, you know, Wall Street is still there. But as a matter of practical reality, it cannot continue indefinitely. 
because it's drawing down the ecological capital of the planet. Even before you get to questions of equity and social justice, this is simply an unsustainable system. And, you know, it stands to reason an unsustainable system can't be sustained forever. Now, we don't know the details of how long this is going to go on, but we can be reasonably certain it's going to change, if not within my lifetime, certainly within my child's lifetime, I think. Okay, so it's not business as usual, because business as usual is kind of a death cult. The most recent system uh, is capitalism. But, you know, we've had unsustainable economic and political systems throughout, you know, basically the last five, six, seven thousand years of, of world history. The Roman Empire was not sustainable. It was based on a constant need to acquire new territory and new resources, and eventually it collapsed. So that's the reality. So what do we do? Well, um, you know, some people talk about, you know, revolutionary movements that will displace capitalism and bring in a new world order. Uh, I've lived long enough to be a little skeptical about the possibility or even the wisdom of that. But there's always small-scale experiments at the local level that you try to bring together share knowledge, and perhaps influence policy at the local level, the provincial or state level, maybe the national level, and maybe eventually the international level. Uh, if I had a recipe for how to make sense of all this, uh, I would you know, have it up on the web and be touting it, but I don't think anybody has such a recipe. So we struggle in the movements and in the day-to-day -day projects that make sense to us. I think that's the best we can do in some sense. And enough people do that, well, then social change is possible. If people abandon that, well, then there really is not much hope. I love that you have found Wes, who founded this beautiful organism called the Land Institute, because I think in many ways, uh, one of my favorite books about you was one on All My Bones Shake. You were talking about the four fundamentalisms, you know, and one mm -hmm. that I think we're really stuck on is this idea that high energy technologies will save us. Yeah. And and we keep toting different miracles, right? One that you note yeah. in your book with Wes is that 1909 miracle of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. And yeah. I wonder if you could tell the story and, and why this blind obedience to fundamentalisms uh, can lead us astray and sometimes to our own death. Yeah. Yeah, we're all familiar with religious fundamentalism and the threat that that poses. We point out national fundamentalism, a kind of hyper-patriotism is incredibly dangerous. Uh, it's now common, at least on the left, to talk about economic fundamentalism or market fundamentalism, this irrational commitment to capitalism. Well, Wes is actually the first person I heard use the term technological fundamentalism. He borrowed it from a friend of his. And it's a belief that all our problems will be solved by high energy, high technology. And what makes it so laughable is it includes the use of high energy, high technology to solve problems caused by previous technology. You know, it's, it's you know, throwing, as they say, good money after bad. So we, we've got to break that. And I, I don't think there's any way around that. Now, you mentioned um, the crisis in the world in the early 20th century when organic sources of fertilizer were, were running out. Uh, guano and things like this. There was only so much of that in the world. And uh, a German chemist and a German engineer perfected something that is now called the Haber-Bosch process. And it allowed, uh, at an industrial scale, the production of synthetic ammonia fertilizer. 
Now, people who know plant science know that nitrogen is a key ingredient to successful agriculture. So how do you produce synthetic nitrogen? Well, there's a lot of nitrogen in the air, but it doesn't just settle onto the ground in a way plants can use. Long story, the Haber-Bosch process has been responsible for the explosion of the human population in the 20th century. Some people estimate as much as 40, 45, maybe even 50 percent of the human population would not be alive without the Haber-Bosch process. Well, that's stunning. You know, we have 8 billion people. We have a population level that can't be sustained probably at any level of consumption, let alone modern industrial consumption. So this story of one industrial process, a belief in technology that would solve our food crisis, uh, has led to a world that is exhausted in ecological terms. Uh, well, you know, the Haber-Bosch process has been called, you know, the single most important uh, advance in science and technology and human history, and so few of us really know about it. I didn't learn about it till I was much older. Well, that's the kind of history we need to know, and it means that if we're going to try and continue to produce food with industrial means, right, the so-called you know, green revolution of the 1950s and 60s, for instance, we're going to go down the same road of drawing down the ecological capital of the planet beyond replacement levels for short-term success, but long-term disaster. And this is what Wes Jackson uh, has always called the failure of success, where you can succeed in the short term and feel pretty good about it, but set the scene for a much larger failure in in decades to come. You know, one of the things that I am very aware now that I'm a grandmother is the beauty of simplicity, right? My granddaughter mm -hmm. sees so much magic in little frogs. You know, there is a, a marshland near where we live, and the, all the frogs were trying to migrate from the pond into this very... Um, into the tall weeds, right, to protect themselves because mm -hmm. all the birds come and eat them. And and I think of all the, the things that we affect just by the act of eating, by the act of agriculture, mm -hmm. by the act of putting, you know, poisons on our weeds to get rid of weeds, right? All of the things that we're killing on a daily basis that go unnoticed. And in so many ways, it shouldn't surprise us because, I mean, we don't even notice when other people are being... Mm -hmm you know, displaced, made homeless, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. be indigenous people, black people, or people of color, you know. <laughs> and, and so how do we break out of that trance? Because in so many ways, perhaps is we've been domesticated by colonialism to look at the world, to normalize injustice, to normalize <laughs> violence, to normalize this death culture that you're speaking of. You're listening to Latin Ways. Our guest is Dr. Robert Jensen. Please visit our website, latinwaysmedia.com, and learn how to support our work by becoming a member for as little as $1 a month. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you, you mentioned being domesticated. A number of people pointed out that when we domesticated plants and animals back in the so-called agricultural revolution, you know, 10, 12,000 years ago, those plants and animals also, in some sense, domesticated us, uh, which just reminds us that we're not in charge. It, we're, we're an organism among many. Uh, we're not capable of running the world in the way that, you know, especially the modern scientific mind believes it can. It doesn't mean modern science is irrelevant or detrimental in all cases, of course. You're talking about shifting a focus, and I think that's 
really important. Let, let me just take one thing that happens when you kind of shift that frame of reference. You mentioned that uh, we need to start living more simply, and that's certainly true. The modern industrial mind, especially with all this high-energy, high-technology, uh, does seem to complicate the world. But in some sense, no matter what humans create, it's always going to be far more simplistic than the larger living world, than what we call nature. West points this out, that if you look at the relationships that maintain a prairie, and he lives in Kansas in, in the middle of the United States where it's prairie territory, well, there's an extraordinary complexity in nature that sustains all of those plants, animals, that keeps that soil healthy. Now, nobody's in charge of organizing all of that because no human being could organize that kind of complexity. So, you know, we tend to look at, uh, let's say, a, a piece of prairie and say, well, that's pretty simple. And Wes would say just the opposite. There is complexity. There is an incredible amount of information in all of those organisms. And human beings can never match that. Right? And that's just a way of kind of flipping the usual frame of reference to help us see the world differently. You know, in that case, protecting the prairie is far more important than you know, protecting any human invention. And as Wes would say, we're far better off investing our future in trying to be as much like the prairie as we can when we farm instead of trying to make a farm, you know, look like an industrial factory. Well, you know, a lot of people from a lot of different traditions have made these kind of points. And I think it's important to realize that when we think about how to go forward, we, we want to pull on the common themes from all the different traditions. And as you pointed out, of course, a lot of traditions have been marginalized, minimized, or literally destroyed, especially indigenous traditions. So, you know, the the coming together of the insights from all of these different perspectives, I think, is the only way we have a, a fighting chance as a species to be around when your your grandchild, you know, comes of age. Uh, and I, I do think the stakes are really that high. One of the things that I want to bring us back to is if we are thinking about the questions that don't have answers you know those are the scary ones and yet that's exactly where we need to go right because we've been told that at 8 billion people we have enough for everyone's needs but not enough for everyone's greed and so if that is the case if we are able to sustain you know the lives to me that question ensues well at what kind of consumption and you yeah. talk in your book about scale and scope and I wonder if you could say more about that. Well, you know, I agree that today, with the agricultural system we have, there is enough food to feed 8 billion people if there were, you know, just an equitable distribution of wealth. That's true enough. But I don't think that's true indefinitely. So while we could feed the entire world today, we are not going to be able to feed the entire world if it has a population of 8 or as it's predicted to go to 9 or 10 billion into the indefinite future, even into the short-term future. Because, as I said, we are drawing down the ecological capital of the planet at dramatically faster than replacement levels. I think that's the ultimate uh, question, as Wes would say, that goes beyond the available answers. And it's the ultimate problem that goes beyond available solutions. And this is in a new manuscript Wes and I are working on, one of the things we take on, the fact that people, not surprisingly, have a hard time asking 
that question or trying to formulate solutions for a world not with 8 billion people, but with a truly sustainable human population into the future. And if you ask me, well, what is the exact level of population, human population that's sustainable? Well, of course, I can't tell you. One is because, as you point out, it depends on what level of consumption we're at. But it also depends on, uh, you know, so many contingencies that nobody can predict. You know, it, in fact, it's the problems that we can't even imagine solutions to that we should be focused on, because, of course, with collective effort, eventually, we might imagine, if not solutions in some nice and tidy way, uh, a path forward that will reduce human suffering and reduce further ecological degradation. Um, now, I'm not trying to sell a plan because I don't have a plan, but I think we have to collectively start engaging those kinds of questions. You know, one of the things that uh, is very evident to me is that this pandemic, we we're, we're told we're all in the same boat. We're all in the boat together, you know. And the reality is that we're not. You know, many people did not have spaces to isolate, you know, as was the case with many members of my family. And, you know, many people have suffered more losses than others. People lost jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. People were forced to close their business. Meanwhile, big businesses were allowed to stay open to continue business as usual. So we're not in the same boat and we're not all suffering the same consequences. What's your vision post-pandemic and do you see a way out? Well, you know, I think it's really important to stress the point you just made, which is, uh, yes, we're all in this together in the sense that every human being is at risk of the virus, but those risks were not uh, uh, apportioned equally across societies, obviously. The one that, you know, as we, we argue politically in, in the United States, left, right, Republicans, Democrats, whatever, is we forget that most of the developing world is still struggling just to get, uh, you know, vaccines. Uh, we have a problem in the United States of enough vaccine, but too many people refusing to take it. Well, guess what? In most of the world, there isn't enough. And so that's a huge gap within developed societies like the U.S. and Canada. Of course, we all know about the, the disparities. And I live that every day. I'm retired, so I have a stable retirement income. Uh, I live with my, my spouse, and we don't have children at home that we had to try and educate online. Uh, neither one of us had to worry about going to work. I mean, the stresses that that so many other people were under, we did not feel. And I was aware of that every day I woke up. And there was, you know, little that could be done about it in the short term. But that's the reality. You know, when I think of stress, I think of this term they use in the banking industry, a stress test, which after the collapse of 2008, we were supposed to have stress tests to test to, to make sure banks were, could be solvent. Well, you could think about, you know, the world having just gone through a really important stress tests at which we failed at almost every turn. You know, the first step toward trying to figure out how to go forward is to realize what isn't working. And that's hard enough in this country. And I'm, I'm not just in the U.S. pointing at, you know, the Trumpers, the right-wing reactionaries. I mean, there's a whole lot of denial across society about what's really happening. What is that going to look like? Well, post-pandemic, well, first of all, we have to ask, is there going to be post-pandemic? Or is this now, as they like to say, a new normal? Are we going to be dealing with 
variations on the coronavirus that basically keep us in some form of, you know, isolation, lockdown, uh, measures that don't allow business as usual. In some ways, that's good. Going back to business as usual just accelerates the degradation of the ecosphere. Uh, But of course, human suffering is magnified during this. So, uh, you know, I would like to think that in times of stress, people come together and ask, what is the humane way to share what we have? And as you pointed out, to reduce what we expect. You know, there's two ways to deal with the world. One is to constantly struggle to get more. And the other is to change your expectations. Um, And it's not enough to do that personally. You know, I've tried to reduce my own consumption and have done some of that. But that's really not the point. The point is we have a society that's fueled by an obsession with growth and an obsession with gadgets. And growth and gadgets are not the future. Growth Mm -hmm. and gadgets as we've been saying, are kind of the markers of a death cult at this point. In many ways, you know, isolation has been very good for the business of empire. Your movement is restricted, and so it's been remarkable that we've seen the level of demonstrations for Black Lives Matter in the midst of pandemic. And Mm -hmm. so I think it speaks to our, as human beings, there is within us a desire to see a world with justice, to to change our society. Your mention of Black Lives Matter is a reminder of how we can never predict the trajectory of change. So I was born in 1958. I lived through the civil rights movement and the initial uh, kind of excitement about that and then the disappointment. As you go into the 90s and the 2000s, it became increasingly clear, and I'll just speak of the United States here, the United States had not really renounced white supremacy and in fact, not only polite liberal white supremacy, but a full-blown right-wing reactionary overt white supremacy surged back. And in the face of that, the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements, you know, you can go back to the American Indian movement, you know, all these efforts to challenge uh, the system of domination and subordination, which had seemed to not make significant ground all of a sudden surged. And I, you know, I would be the first old guy to, to admit that I would have never predicted the last couple of years in the United States. It doesn't mean, of course, you know, the, the struggle is over, nobody's naive, but it does remind us that predictions are, are folly, that, you know, trying to predict in some, you know, exact way where a society going isn't really important or possible. We should think about the likely trajectory, and we have to predict where we think things are going to try and fashion policy to head off the worst and trying to create a better world. But, you know, I I remember Noam Chomsky, the great American dissident, whenever he was asked about predicting things, he said, listen, this isn't a matter of prediction, it's a matter of action, right? We make a world by acting, not by predicting what will happen. And I've carried that with me for a long time now, that Prediction is is fine. Sometimes we have to try and give it our best shot. But the real question is, is action. What do we want to do? I just want to say thank you so much for all the work that you do and for this beautiful book that not only challenges to see the limits of our knowledge, but to really be open to what we don't know. Yeah. Well, Sylvia, um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, there's a new pleasure now because... 
since we last talked, I've moved, and the community I now live in, the community radio station there carries Latin waves, so oh. I get to hear you on my radio, not just having to go online. It's never as much fun to go online. So uh, there's a little thing to celebrate in my life. I, I, get to, uh, I get to hear you on the radio where I live, so keep up the good work, please. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yep. Look bet. forward to speaking to you again. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.